Hello everyone, and welcome to the Russian Empire History Podcast. The history of all the peoples, the Russian Empire. I'm your host, J.P. Bristow. This is Season 1, The Forest, The Steppe, and The Birth of the Russian Empire. And Episode 26, Enter the Rus, Part 3. Thanks to Chris for signing up as a state councillor through Patreon, and to all the other patrons and subscribers who have joined me this year. A member episode on the northern slave trade, one of the foundations of Rus Wealth, was released last week. This is the last episode of 2022, so if you would like some extra Russian Empire history podcast material while I'm taking a short summer break, feel free to sign up for a month or two and enjoy those member episodes. There's four out now, and another one dropping around the end of the month. While I may be looking forward to my summer, for most of you it's winter, and that includes the people living in the places we're talking about today. Many of them will be seeing in the new year in homes without heat or power, as Russia continues to bomb Ukraine's infrastructure. If you'd like to help them get generators, blankets, and other support, Check the links in the show notes and the episode blog post. So, we have looked at the arrival of the Rus in the northern forests and their spread or attempt to spread towards the Volga and the trade routes into the Caucasus and Central Asia. In this episode, we will wrap up this scene-setting mini-series with a look at their move westward into the Dnieper Valley, trade routes to the west, and the Greek road. In contrast to the steppe of the Volga and Caspian regions, where Volga Bulgaria emerged as a power just as the Rus were making their first forays, and the Khazars were already well established, in the forest steppe belt to the west, there were no such competing local polities. Any centralization was still embryonic. Family groups and clans were the prevailing forms of organization. Towns were still tiny, the settled population was in small villages, often based around one extended family, and agriculture was still transitioning from slash-and-burn and ad hoc planting and gathering to proper farming. There was still a strong tendency to winter on the rivers and move out into pasture or cultivatable land in the summer. This matched the Scandinavian and early Rus migratory lifestyle of summer trading and raiding expeditions with returns to winter bases. So it was natural for these two ways of living to line up and for towns and cities to start to emerge at places where they could winter together. And so there was no equivalent of the Bulgars or Khazars that the Rus needed to pay a tithe to for permission to trade and move their goods. You might think that this meant the Rus were looking for routes south to Byzantium, right from the beginning of their move towards the Dnieper. After all, the Scandinavia to Constantinople route is probably the most famous of the eastern roads. But that was not actually the case. Initially, they were taking over and expanding the routes from the Volga into Central Europe crossing the Dnieper rather than travelling along it. The simple fact is, as I'm fairly sure I've already mentioned, 
Before modern water management works, the Dnieper was just not such a good natural route as the Don or the Volga. While those rivers were fairly easy to navigate, especially when full in the spring and early summer, the Dnieper had seven cataracts that meant travellers had to take to the shore and carry their boats and goods around. These cataracts lay within the territory claimed by steppe tribes. Initially the Magyars, as the Rus were making their first forays, and then the Pechenegs. So the Rus either had to maintain peace with them by negotiations and the exchange of gifts and payments, or risk attack while they were dragging their things along the riverbank. The risk was well known to all the river's users. In the De Administrando Imperia, Emperor Constantine Porphyrogenitus wrote, quote, Nor can the Rus come at the imperial city of the Romans, whether for war or for trade, unless they are at peace with the Pechenegs. Because when the Russians come with their ships to the barrages of the river and cannot pass through unless they lift their ships off the river and carry them past, by portaging them on their shoulders, then the men of the Pechenegs set upon them, and as they cannot do two things at once, they are easily routed and cut to pieces. End quote. The Pechenegs seem to have been regarded as highly dangerous by all of their neighbours and were decidedly volatile. Later they would support Sviatoslav in his campaign against Byzantium, but turned against him on his way back, perhaps at the behest of Constantinople ambushing him at a ford to steal his treasure and turning his skull into a drinking cup. The Rus remained vulnerable to attacks on land for a couple of centuries until they adapted to adequately combat the steppe fighting style, partly by adopting their own cavalry. Although the Scandinavians were of course fearsome foot soldiers, contemporary writers note that they were poor on horseback and it took them a while to acquire the necessary skills. Rus would begin to develop a proper cavalry under Sviatoslav, but it was not an overnight success. This meant that they tended not to attack the steppe themselves until later on in their history. The Rus primarily took a defensive stance, as can be seen in Vladimir building a series of fortresses in the Zmiervivali, the snake or dragon ramparts which defended Kiev. These walls form part of a network of around a thousand kilometers of defenses built across the region at various times to defend against steppe invaders. The main danger at the time was not conquest, but disruption, theft, and above all, slave-taking. There are no records of the Khazars making war on the Rus and it's probable that most conflict was small-scale opportunistic raiding, and it is probable that most conflict with the steppe was small-scale opportunistic raiding. Of course, the Rus will eventually go to war on the Khazars themselves, and because they are not alone, we've already looked at how Byzantium turns on their former allies after their conversion to Judaism, and because there are new groups migrating from the east, Rus will bring about their downfall. 
But for the first couple of centuries, the balance of power is very much not in the Rus' favour, and it's no surprise that they are not really military competitors. When Rus appeared, the steppe peoples were more numerous, richer, and stronger. Now, while you've been listening to this podcast, you might have been wondering just how populous these steppe empires were. After all, although modern Ukraine and European Russia are fairly well populated, the Central Asian steppe and Mongolia are not. I have also wondered about this, but it's been very difficult to find any population estimates. There are plenty of estimates for cities, but not for entire peoples or nations. So, for instance, Islamic writers put the population of Itil and Bulgar in the tens of thousands, but do not comment on the total population of Khazaria or Bulgaria. I found one paper on the Sabirs that did attempt to reconstruct a total population for them at the time of the breakup of the Western Turk Empire, when they were resident in the Caucasus, from where it's likely that they formed a large proportion of the Khazars and, as the Suvars, one of the tribes that moved north into Volga, Bulgaria, where their descendants became the Chuvash. Based on contemporary reports, military records, and extrapolations about fighting men to total population and city to rural population ratios, the authors put the likely total population of Sabirs at around 1.5 million people. The city of Bulga reached a population of around 50,000. Suva was a little smaller. Estimates of the Madia population that migrated around the same time from the Cis-Ural region to modern Hungary range from 100,000 to 400,000. The Pechenegs were not centralised, I could not find any estimates for them, but if they were strong enough to push the Madia migration, they must have been at least a comparable size. Whatever the exact answer may be, it seems that we can accept that in Volga Bulgaria, Khazaria and their subjects' peoples, the Rus were facing a population of millions in quite well-organised states. For comparison, the total population of Britain or Scandinavia at the time was under one million. How many Slavs or Finno-Ugrian people were there? Again, it's hard to find estimates. The forest population was certainly lower than the steppes. In the early days of the Rus, the Slavs had yet to start spreading north and east. Poland had a population of under one million, and it seems to me that a similar population of eastern Slavs could be a fair guess. The bare numbers may underestimate the disbalance. One million steppe nomads, or recently settled people of steppe nomad heritage, equaled a much larger and more effective army than one million peasants in an agricultural society. The centuries of successful campaigns by Huns, Turks, Khazars and Mongols were no accident. So the defensive posture and tendency to work with their steppe neighbours in the early days of Rus was entirely reasonable. Historian Istvan Zimony has compiled all the references in Islamic texts to military forces in the region. The Burtas, 
a Khazar vassal, could field 10,000 troops. The Madhyas, between 20,000 and 50,000, depending on the source. The Khazar Khan had a standing army of 7,000 bodyguards and 15,000 mercenaries. Volga Bulgaria is not specified anywhere, but given its dominant position in the Middle Volga, its armies must have been comparable. The Khazar experience against the Arabs and the Magyars against Western armies shows that these were high-quality forces. Comparing populations can also be difficult due to the uncertainty over borders and what territory to take when you're talking about states that existed for a period but now don't, or have dramatically changed in size. For example, I found one work calculating global populations in the year 1000 that gives the population of Rus as 5.2 million. That seems like a massive population for the time, but the notes show that it is actually for the population within the European 1914 borders of the Russian Empire. Of that 5.2 million, the article refers just over 1 million to Kiev and the southern territory of Rus. But unhelpfully, it does not provide a figure for Rus, including Novgorod and the other more northeastern cities. But I think my point is clear that the steppe had a larger population than the forest steppe and forest belts, and therefore it was in the interests of Rus to trade with their wealthy neighbours rather than fighting people who were equally fierce and more numerous. This is also reflected when the tale of bygone years and contemporary writers wrote about large-scale Rus expeditions. The campaign against Constantinople in 860 had an army of around 8,000, a substantial force comparable to the great Viking army in Britain, but smaller than the Khazars could muster. Later, in 907, Alek supposedly brought 8,000 men, but the chronicler writes that this army included the Varangians, the Rus, the Palanians, the Slavs, the Krivichians, the Tiverchians, and the Pechenegs, travelling by ship and horse. That is, everyone in the entire region got together to attack the Byzantines. So although it might have been less than 80,000, it could still have been a big force, but one in which the Rus were only a minority. In a later campaign by Sviatoslav, the 11th century Byzantine historian John Skylitzis puts the Russian army at a rather absurd 308,000. But the tale says just 10,000 were his own men, and the contemporary Byzantine reports put the whole army at 60,000. I think you can see how this imbalance of forces in the Rus encounters with the steppe would have encouraged them to expand around rather than into the steppe, and therefore to look further west. The Dnieper Valley was accessible from the north by river, so it would have been an attractive option for exploring Scandinavians. It also offered a potential trade route south to the Byzantines rather than the Arabs and Persians. There were people already there, 
the various Slav tribes, who apparently were willing to accept a foreign warrior elite, who were in turn apparently willing to assimilate and adopt their language. And it skirted around the edge of the area under steppe control, which provided an element of independence and defensibility. According to the tale of bygone years, after he had established himself in Novgorod, Rurik sent a pair of Vikings by the names of Asgold and Deer to Constantinople. As they made their way down the Dnieper, they saw a better opportunity in Kiev, where the tale says the local Polyanians were paying tribute to the Khazars, and they seized power. According to the chronicler, the successful 860 attack on Constantinople then followed. Later, Alek, known as Alek of Novgorod, Alek the Seer, or Alek the Prophet, a relative of Rurik, came to replace them, killing them, and then later staging his own, less successful attack on Constantinople. There are a lot of questions about the tale's story here, which we will get into in coming chronological episodes. The 860 attack on Constantinople did not start from Kiev, for one. That's just the chronicler's anachronistic assumption. Other sources give completely different dates for Alec for another, but the approximate time does more or less match the archaeological record. 9th century Kiev was a small Slavic settlement, although it was in a promising location. The earliest finds so far discovered suggest that it was a village of the typical semi-underground Slav houses on top of one of the hills overlooking the Dnieper. Close by are the foundations of a stone structure that remains the subject of debate. Some scholars see it as a Slav religious site, others the fort of a Khazar garrison responsible for collecting taxes from the local Slavs. Still others as a Magyar site, with the Magyars fulfilling the role of tax collectors for the Khazars. But around the turn of the 10th century, there is a sudden change. The village rapidly expands into a town, full of Scandinavian-style wooden longhouse-type buildings. By 100 years later, as Yaroslav the Wise took over, it was a city of 45,000, bigger than London or Paris. What made Kiev so attractive? The answer surely lies in its strategic position. Essentially, the southernmost point for settled life, the closest point a sedentary civilization could get to Byzantium at the time. Although, as we shall see later, this proximity to the steppe would also prove to be its Achilles' heel. It was also well-placed to act as the point of convergence for trade routes running east-west and north-south. Indeed, if we look at the tale of bygone years, we find that it does not describe just a route down from Novgorod to Constantinople. Instead, it describes a circular route that once again shows how Rus was part of a much wider world. The route is, quote, from Greece to the Dnieper River, to the Lovat River into Lake Ilmen, and to the Volkhov River to Lake Neva which opens into the Varangian Sea, the sea to Rome, and then Rome to Sargrad. A few lines later, the chronicler refers to taking the western Davina to Rome, that is, travelling from northern Rus 
into the Baltic, around the European coast, into the Mediterranean, and so to Rome. So in the view of the Rus, their trade with Byzantium was part of a continental trade that encompassed all of Europe, and from the very beginning they looked to Rome as well as to Constantinople. The east-west routes ran by land as well as rivers. You can pretty much draw a straight line from the Khazars on the lower Volga through Kiev to German territory. Customs records from Raffelstadt, dated between 903 and 905, show that the Rus were authorised to trade at three markets, on the middle Danube, in the Rodol Valley, and in the eastern part of Muvirtil. As we have seen further east, their main items for sale were wax, furs, and female slaves, although they also sold horses. The records state that these trading rights were the renewal of original charters granted under Louis the German, who ruled in 840-876, showing that the Rus must have established the routes from the Volga into Central Europe from the very earliest days of Rus, certainly before the Novgorod to Byzantium trade route. The evidence suggests that it actually took several decades to develop a substantial trade with Constantinople, and initially commerce with the Magyars, and then the Pechenegs, who appeared in the steppe south of Kiev in 915 and gave the Magyars their final push west into Hungary, was more important. As we have seen previously with various steppe peoples, the Rus first raided Byzantine territory, and then used the resulting treaty ending their hostilities to establish trade rights. As well as granting the Rus the right to visit Constantinople at certain times of year, to stay in particular places, to sell their goods at particular markets, and to receive supplies to support themselves in the city and on their way home, the treaties pulled the Rus into Byzantine politics. The Rus were asked to supply mercenaries, which grew into the Varangian Guard, and at times to prove their friendship by fighting Byzantium's enemies, such as the Bulgarians, and probably the Khazars. Subsequent raids by the Rus can be seen as an attempt to improve their treaty rights. A risky business, as an unsuccessful raid, could and did result in a more unfavourable treaty. The treaties with Byzantium give us some insight into the development of Rus. In the earliest ones, just about all the names on the Rus' side are Scandinavian, but over time we see them gradually supplanted by Slavic names. We can also see the gradual centralisation of the state. In the earliest treaties, the merchants and nobles participate in the negotiations and are required to ratify the treaty individually. A century later, no Rus merchant is admitted to Constantinople without the seal of the Prince of Kiev. The 944 Treaty with Constantinople also gives us the first actual evidence of Christians in Rus. The treaties list the oaths that the signatories use to swear their adherence to the terms, and here for the first time they are noted as Christians and required to swear to hold to the treaty in the Church of St. Elias in Kiev. By their names, many of them are Scandinavians, 
which leads to a debate about what kind of Christians were in Kiev at the time, Latin Rite or Orthodox. As Rus will see in upcoming episodes, the story of the conversion of Rus is maybe not as straightforward as legend would have it. Developing their trade with Constantinople required the Rus to adapt to the conditions along the way. Namely, what to do about those impassable rapids. Rather than taking their seagoing longships, which were usually quite suitable for river transport, they moved to smaller, lighter ships, which could be dragged or run on log rollers. They had less bracing, which meant they could flex over uneven ground and around obstacles. This would probably have made them less seaworthy, as stiffness is required to cope with waves, but it worked well in conditions of regular portage, especially if you were carrying slaves who could do the heavy lifting for you. Seagoing longships sailed from the Baltic into Novgorod or Staré Ladoga, and then crews and cargo transferred to the smaller, but still clinker-built, Scandinavian-style boats to sail down to Gnozdova. Rostov, or Kiev. But from Kiev south, through the Cascades, the Rus turned to dugouts, the Byzantines called monosyla. The De Administrando Imperia describes the Rus preparing hundreds of these ahead of the navigation season. Logs would be flattened and hollowed, and additional planking added to increase cargo capacity. The dugouts could be joined together or tied in series and floated downstream. Teams could portage them around obstacles easier than larger boats. As the description suggests, these dugouts were probably treated as disposable once they'd reached their destination, and the crews could pack into the minimum number of boats necessary to make the return journey. Unlike the Volga, where, as we have seen, trade was something desired and facilitated by local rulers who organised markets and accommodation for markets. The southwestern steppe was generally hostile. The Pechenegs viewed passing goods trains as fair game, and particularly considered that any salvage, if a storm blew boats onto the shore, for instance, belonged to them. To successfully trade, merchants needed to at least make it down to Kherson in Crimea, as Kherson was the major market for the Magyars and Pechenegs to sell their slaves. They did not attack it out of self-interest. Thinking back to Noonan and Pritzak's concepts of trade driving the emergence of polities in the region, we can see an interesting contrast here. The Pechenegs never tried to systematize their approach to merchants passing through their territory. They would raid and steal, but they did not tax or impose customs duties. The tribes actively sought wealth and were noted by contemporary writers to be wealthy, but they stuck to plunder and did not organise themselves to maximise their opportunities. They could be described as matching the stereotypical image of the steppe nomad, in a way that we have seen the vast majority of steppe nomads actually did not. They remained mobile pastoralists, and only interacted with the surrounding world to take things by force. Of course, the Rus made efforts to placate them and to make travel safe for their merchants. Constantine Porphyrogenitus comments on this, quote, 
The Rus are also much concerned to keep the peace with the Pechenegs. They buy horned cattle and horses and sheep from them, whereby they live more easily and comfortably, since none of the aforesaid animals are found in Rus. End quote. By the late 10th century, Kyiv was becoming a manufacturing centre as well as the meeting place of trade routes. Jewellery and swords were two important products. The Franks were the main sword makers of Europe at the time, and the Rus attempted to emulate their products. Sword making is a much more complex art than it might seem at first glance. It's actually very difficult to make a long blade that will not warp or shatter, and it will withstand battle. This is both the reason why spears, battle axes, and various kinds of mace or club were more common than swords, and why there are so many legendary swords in the stories. If someone, usually a king because you had to be rich, had a sword that could actually be successfully used for years, it was something out of the ordinary that would become one of their trademark features. As a multi-ethnic state, enthusiastically trading with its neighbours, Rus created a distinct cross-pollination of metalworking styles. Workshops that appear to have been owned by Madhya artisans have been found in Kiev, as well as an already considerable number of swords that are decorated in a combination of Scandinavian-derived and Madhya styles. These mixed styles also owed something to Rus and Varangian warriors, taking service with other rulers. They are known to have served among the Bulgars and the Khazars. It is thought to be quite probable that there were Rus serving with the Magyars, including after they took up their western residence. These warriors would have moved from one term of service to another and would naturally have gravitated back to Kiev and other growing Rus cities, bringing weapons and equipment that they picked up along the way with them. So we find Turkic horse gear and bows in Viking graves, Scandinavian-style axes, drinking horns and board games in steppe graves. So we have two ways of thinking about the spread of the Rus. The first is the spread along the trade routes, which is usually presented as basically the entire story. And this is presented as a question of north-south, Scandinavia to Byzantium. But as we've seen, that was a later stage. The first north-south was Scandinavia to the Islamic world, and contact with the Islamic world also stimulated east-west connections. A factor that can sometimes get overlooked is the meeting of the forest and steppe worlds, and from their first point of contact with the steppe peoples, the Rus spread along this boundary, with their greatest city, Kiev, lying right on it. Commercial interests drove generally applicable and mutually beneficial relationships between neighbouring polities. When this broke down, it may have been nefarious Byzantine action behind it. They probably paid the Pechenegs to attack the Rus, and they paid the Rus to attack the Khazars. These relationships led to a certain degree of cultural mingling between the Scandinavians and the Finno-Ugrians and the Slavs they ruled 
and between the Scandinavians and their subjects and their Turkic and Iranic neighbours. Let's not forget there are still some of them around on the steppe, even if they're not the dominant force anymore. The Osterwege became a link that connected five regions and cultures. Scandinavia, the Slavs, the Turkic peoples, the Islamic world and Byzantium. I think that over these three introductory episodes, as well as the members episode on the northern slave trade if you've listened to that, you have been able to see that connection. As we've already seen a number of times in this podcast, we're talking about a world that is not divided into Asia and Europe, and not into Eastern Europe and Western Europe. Rus is not an isolated and obscure princedom off somewhere beyond the edge of the map, beyond the bounds of civilization. It is a large, powerful and wealthy kingdom, with commercial ties across Eurasia. Its rulers conclude dynastic marriages into the ruling families of other powers, from England to Byzantium. It is in every way fully a part of the medieval European community. Join me next time, next year, as we start a chronological journey through Rus, starting with Rurik. Each episode has an accompanying blog post where you can find maps, images of things we discuss, and sources. You can find them through the link in the show notes or on the website at therussianempirehistorypodcast.com. You can get in touch with me via the website, Twitter, or Facebook, or by email to hello at therussianempirehistorypodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Till next time, goodbye. (laughs) 